Lessons on Launching, Funding and Marketing a Startup. This is the Early Days Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Early Days Podcast, the show about the hustle, the excitement, the grind, the ups and downs, the success, the failures of building a business from scratch. Nice dude, as if you wrote that. Yeah, and been repeating it for one year now, <laughs> so I think I had a lot of time to rehearse. <laughs> nice. But the guest on this episode is Diane, uh, who is the founder of Startup Distillery. Uh, Diane works as a consultant to small businesses and startups as well. Uh, she goes in and helps them with the problems that they have, preparing them for pitch decks, for example, or their communication strategy, marketing, and a lot of the challenges the small businesses uh, have. It was a very pleasure, pleasant uh, episode. Uh, Diane had a lot of anecdotes to share from her experience. Uh, mm-hmm. We go deep into some of the main problems startups are having. And all in all, great conversation. Um, a lot of things to uh, get from if you're just starting out or in your well, like one year one or year two. Uh, if you have a lot of questions about where do you go uh, from, if you're stuck on something, maybe this conversation will help you a little bit. Yep, I have nothing to add. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Thank you very much for doing that. Uh, all the links uh, with the show notes for this episode will be available on our website, wherdool.com slash podcast. Um, yeah, everything yeah. that's mentioned there by Diane or us, it's going to be in there. So go ahead and check it out, wordle.com slash podcast and subscribe, like, share our podcast on all your favorite platforms. Thank you. See you, peeps. I'm Diane Tarshis and uh, I am founder and principal of Startup Distillery, which I founded, this is my 19th year, so I founded it in 2000, and I work with startups, helping them deliver uh, or develop effective growth strategies and operating blueprints. So that takes the form of um, business plans or um, business model canvases or companies that have gotten stuck and they, or they've plateaued and they need help getting unstuck and growing, um, companies that need to raise funds and pitch, um, gosh, a whole host of services around early stage, uh, uh, growth companies. Yeah. I think this is actually how we connected. I, I remember is, um, I saw, I saw you under a Twitter thread about somebody who just had a meeting with, um, with mm-hmm. a startup founder and they were, it was on the topic around funding. Uh, whether they should go with the VC funding or bootstrapping. It's actually something we can talk uh, touch on later in the conversation as well. But I'm curious, when you mentioned 2000, year 2000, is that somewhere around the dot-com uh, boom and... Everything? And bust. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I've been through a couple of cycles, so I have uh, a nice perspective. So... Um, yeah, I mean, personally, this was just, um, I founded the company based on personal reasons. So um, my background is one where um, uh, I, when I was in college, I started doing small business consulting. Um, I, I went to the Wharton School and they had, at the University of Pennsylvania, and they had a research center that was a joint venture between the um, U.S. Small Business Administration, so the SBA, and they were um, testing out this new model working with universities or partnering with universities 
the idea was to bring students together with local business owners um, and to really combine the best of both worlds. So the students' theoretical knowledge along with the client's practical um, industry-specific knowledge. Right. And um, so that's how I got into it. But I first, when I graduated, I worked on Wall Street. I was an investment banker, um, um, had other, I ended up moving from New York to Chicago, worked in operations, manufacturing, and then um, got married, started a family, wanted to have something more flexible. And the timing happened to be <laughs> 2000 when I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. So that's how that happened. And I'm, I'm curious, how did you approach your very first clients? Uh, were you on a personal network or do you just start from the very beginning building up from uh, zero? Well, you have to remember that. So 2000, um, uh, you know, the Internet really wasn't it was it was very new. Um, and so I, I certainly started from uh, my personal network. So um, uh, a friend of my sister's uh, was trying to launch a business. I also had a neighbor who was trying to launch a business um, and, uh, and so, uh, that's how I got started. Um, the third client was what I would call my real client, my first real client, somebody I didn't know, somebody not even in, in Chicago. Well, my, uh, my sister's, um, friend was in San Francisco. Um, my first client was based in Boston. Uh, so it was really just, um, emailing things back and forth and talking on the phone, um, and, um, uh, I learned my first pricing lesson, um, because I, I, uh, I did a, a custom business plan and, um, I had, he was an amazing client and turned out great and they got funding, et cetera. Um, but right after the business plan was finished, he and his partner sent me this humongous bouquet of flowers and my husband said, looked at me when he came home and he said, you didn't charge enough. <laughs> he said, if they could afford to buy you that kind of bouquet of flowers, you didn't charge enough. So uh, I adjusted my prices accordingly. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. The interesting topic as well. How did you get the confidence to charge higher the next time? Did you have go went through an experimental period where you're testing out different yeah. options? Yes, always. Um, and you're always tweaking. But um, the re you know, going through the process, it was very labor intensive. And so between that and really taking, believe it or not, what my husband said to heart, um, I really sort of did this calculation. Um, I also did a lot of my own, you know, research in terms of what are other people charging. Um, I think that's always a good exercise and something I, I advise my clients to do, get a sense of what the market will bear, what are other people charging, what, um, what, uh, are, what do they um, include in that price? So uh, whether it's a product or a service, um, because you may be offering more or less or something that's more valuable or less valuable, and you should really adjust your pricing accordingly. Um, but, um, um, it, you know, it, as I say all of this, I start thinking about another, I had a client of mine that was, um, product focused and what I run into with a lot of, um, a lot of my clients is when they're trying to develop their pricing, 
it's not only what the market will bear and the sort of uh, value model, but it's also really taking a careful look at the elements um, that are going into the product. So, for example, um, this client was developing luxury leather goods, um, accessories uh, for women primarily, um, and they weren't including all of the material expenses. They had never put together a spreadsheet to see how much the rivets were, how much the labor was for the fancy stitching, how much the um, um, the suede interiors were. I mean, you know, th- they really needed to break everything down and they didn't do that. And that that's sort of a classic story um, that I run into, whether it's a client or, or just somebody I run into um, otherwise, where they're not taking into account all of the expenses involved. And if they do that ahead of time, they could see whether they're going to be making or losing money in the end. So, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, we went to kind of the same process because we, we take a lot of materials and then we assemble that into one shirt. Well, you always look at the, the total cost. I mean, I don't know how you would, you would ignore kind of the, everything that goes into the price. Uh, but you mentioned some common, common, uh, I guess problems. What are some of the most common sticking points or hurdles that you see companies get stuck on, especially maybe in the beginning stage? In the beginning stages. Oh boy, <laughs> uh, can you narrow that down a little? <laughs> well, let's say when they launch, there's usually like they've built up an audience and there's like people expecting a product. Then at some point you exhaust those those people, and there's kind of a flat line. So at that point, I think it's very critical. Some people might get discouraged. Some people might push through it. Right. What do you see a kind of the common, yeah, just some common, you know, aspects of, I guess, of the flat line? Well, so here's where I'm a little bit of an outlier because I, I handle a launch apparently very differently than most. Um, because when I'm working with someone, okay, so I'm going to make a generalization here. The, <laughs> and I'm going to sound a little ageist. So when I'm working with clients in their 20s, they just want to, as I say, go off half-cocked. So they want to get started, hit the ground running, and they'll figure things out as they go along. My clients in their 30s on up uh, tend to have a little more experience under their belt and belts and realize that it's better to... Um, there used to be this commercial in the U S about, you know, you can pay me now or you can pay me later um, about oil filters for your car. But, <laughs> but um, uh, I, they understand the importance of sort of front loading the homework, so to speak. So, um, uh, so I try to make sure that there's a roadmap f- from the very beginning so that they don't stall out and get stuck. So the whole idea is to say, okay, you know, who are my, what's my target audience? Who are my, uh, um, what are my customer segments? Who am I going after? Stage one, stage two, stage three. Um, How am I planning to reach them? Stage one, stage two, stage three, based on um, uh, traction and the reception that they're getting, based on... um, um, the growth that they're seeing, because 
It may be that they grow in different areas that they didn't predict. And so they need to do a shift of resources and focus. Um, you know, maybe the, um, uh, I had a client who developed a, a medical device and they were originally going after the private sector, but then it turns out that the um, military was interested and that that was a better focus. And so um, you have to have this sort of uh, general framework to work within and then plan, okay, when I am hitting this benchmark, um, I can spend more money um, to do this kind of marketing in this kind of way, or it's time for me to raise more funds so that I can do that. So, so I tend to prepare them so they're not stalling out. Um, which is, right. that, that, that's my philosophy. Um, instead of having to, um, you know, spin your wheels and waste time and money. So, but what happens when things don't go according to plan? Because this is in a real, like, um, oh, you, you, mentioned, yeah, you mentioned one example where the company needed to change their direction a little bit to a different mm -hmm. type of customer. How do you uh, work with those clients? Because it can be quite challenging. Maybe they're really setting mm -hmm. their ways and really passionate about pursuing their direct-to-consumer strategy. But maybe in this case, as you say, the other uh, party was much, much better fit. You know, it, I always feel like um, I'm, I'm, I'm stubborn in certain ways. And so I feel like uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so um, when I run into a client that doesn't know, um, you know, hang on, I'm going to actually bring up, I, I want to bring up a list. Um, I need to jog my memory as to who, um, uh, I know I've got clients that are going to bring up good stories here. Um, here we go. Because, uh, you know, it's like showing versus telling. Um, so I'm going down my list here. Um, I was just talking to a, a former client of mine. He, um, he wanted to develop these community music centers um, that offer, you know, band space, uh, you know, space for bands to practice and then to um, have a school to teach instrument lessons to kids and adults. And this whole sort of music communal thing that he could develop and then and then grow in multiple locations. And so he's been trying to raise funds and I am not a fund you know, a, a, a resource for, for funding. Um, and I have maybe a few connections, but, um, it's not a service I provide, but he needed to brainstorm and, um, he's not getting the response that he, everyone loves his idea. Everyone thinks it's great. Everyone thinks it's going to work, but nobody's feeling the passion. And, um, he's not finding that one person that feels the same way he does. And so to me, all of this is about uh, brainstorming. And so I'm like, okay, well, so let's shift from the private fundraising model to, you know, let's think about um, grants. So, um, you know, you're, you're offering community-based services here that um, um, uh, counties, cities, states feel strongly about early education for kids, et cetera. There have to be grants, um, you know, at these various levels 
that you can go after and apply for that may help meet the gap because um, he uh, there's a bank that's interested in loaning him half of what he needs. He needs to raise the other half. So, um, you know, there's always another way to solve the problem. If you're not reaching people through a social marketing, uh, a social media marketing plan, then maybe you need to think more grassroots. Maybe you need to start at um, a more local level of um, uh, if it's a retail shop and um, um, offering programming on the weekends to bring in families where there's a story reading uh, sort of hour every morning to bring in families or um uh, get involved in the community in terms of neighborhood associations or, um, you know, I, I don't know. There, You know, depending on the business, there's always a way. It's just a matter to me of brainstorming ideas. Um, and the other piece that I find is the more you talk about your business to people, the more you'll, you sort of seem to stumble across new ideas. Um, I always sort of wonder if, it's always out there and you're just tuned in because you're talking about it or whether talking about it sort of brings everything to you, but I don't know, um, sort of babbling, but. So while we're on the topic of funding, how do you think about uh, self-funding or looking for capital? Cause it seems like uh, it's very popular and I know to start a business right off the bat, get funding kind of, that's kind of the first thing to tackle. Uh, we went the other route for personal personal reasons, but how are you thinking about it? Is it black or white? Are there some cases where you actually need funding, or is it maybe some something that you need to do down the line? How do you think about the whole? Well, you hit upon one of my pet peeves, so um, you did it the way I like. <laughs> so um, I, in fact, the tweet that probably caught your attention is me sort of semi ranting. Um, on Twitter because it drives me crazy when companies um, think that they need to raise money right away. And also um, I think there's too much of this feeling of the end goal is to raise money as opposed to the end goal being to build a growing, profitable, thriving business. Um, so I, I personally am frequently anti-VC um, because, uh, maybe it's because I'm a control freak and I think every founder should be, um, or I assume that every founder wants to be. Um, but to me, uh, the ideal situation is to, um, bootstrap as long as you can or get money from friends and family who can be very forgiving oftentimes, not always. Um, and, um, the more traction you can get, you know, the more you can build your business using your own resources, certainly the more control you have. And then when the time comes when you do decide that you want to raise money, you are in a stronger negotiating position. So when you're starting out, you have nothing to show other than an idea. And you are essentially, you know, standing there hat in hand, begging for money. But when you have something to show, something tangible, and you've got substantial proof that you've got something with legs, then you hold the cards and you can 
negotiate from a position of strength. And then um, you can be careful about who you partner with and make sure that um, your personalities align, that your goals align. Um, one of the problems that I have with uh, venture money is that um, their goals are really not aligned with most founders. They want to get in, make a lot of money, and get out or have your company sold. And a lot of founders that I work with, not all of them, but a lot of them don't really want that. You know, it's their baby. And so they want to see it through. So um, so I'm a fan of bootstrapping as long as you can uh, and then negotiating from a position of strength to raise money. So, What do you think about the argument? And we hear it a lot as well because of our situation and our choices um, is that um, people say, because while we're self-funding the company as well, we still have also day jobs that are actually supporting the bills and everything else. So we can focus the rest of the time on building the business. Smart. Very and smart. When we talk with other, with some people, they sometimes say, yeah, but if you're not hundred percent dedicated, then you're not necessarily, uh, you know, moving, uh, in the right way or in the right direction. What do you think about this argument? I'm quite curious. Nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> you know, I, first of all, who are they to judge? You know, that's my reaction. What do they know? Um, and I'm sure you've experienced this um, as founders, but you'll run across so many people who will say, you can't, you shouldn't, don't, it won't work. I mean, you know, if everybody listened to the naysayers, nothing would get created and nothing would get done. I mean, you know, there'd be no innovation. So, um, so yeah, I in a word nonsense. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree hundred percent to that. There's also because we can prove it from experience as well. It doesn't feel uh, worse. Actually, it feels really good as well. It gives us a lot of freedom. That's one thing I think it notices. It kind of you don't have to do rush, rush decisions in this case. I think that is key. I, 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 you know, you're doing everything the way I I like people to do it. So I, um, from an external side. It's, it's so refreshing because what your philosophy and, and what you're doing is rare. Um, most people really, I think, um, think in a short-term way and you guys are clearly thinking long-term, um, not only long-term, but, um, so you're trying to build, it sounds like, um, wisely and for long-term success, but also, um, um, thinking about your uh, balancing with your personal lives because, you know, the stress of having, you know, everything in the company when you're trying to put food on the table is, you know, then it becomes all consuming and then that's not really a healthy lifestyle for the long term. So um, I try to encourage entrepreneurs to to you know do the side hustle and really um i can't emphasize enough the value i find in self-funding for as long as you can um because exactly what you said it gives you freedom um you there i want to say there's less stress it's just that it's different stress um because i'm sure balancing is a challenge um but yeah you're masters of your destiny so to me, that's what it's about. Yeah, on the, on the stress topic, I think you, you touched on it uh, really nicely. Because usually there's a kind of an annotation that if you're building a business, it should be really stressful. Like everything's really, you know, you're struggling 
really. But we never felt that during the whole, you know, two years of building it because there's always, I mean, financially we are okay even if the business, you know, let's say fails, whatever happens, we just had some savings put in the business. I mean, mm-hmm. so work case scenario is not that bad in theory, but there's also like, there's no stress of actually building it. So it's, you're taking your time. And also I think the, like building it on the side, you, you know that you have, let's say two hours to spend on the business today. For example, let's say we work until six and then we say we have two hours to, to spend on an evening. And then you kind of prioritize the most important things for those two hours. Otherwise, hey, if you have the whole day, I wouldn't be as productive, I don't think. That's actually a good point. Um, interestingly, I, I am starting another <laughs> another business, this time with a partner that's related to my current business. So um, she's a teacher. Um, I have, I started out, um, mentoring this high school class, uh, teaching social entrepreneurship. And, um, uh, I, I have a product that I sell. It's a a DIY do it yourself business plan kit, um, ebook templates, worksheets, uh, for people that can't afford my one-on-one services. And I adapted it for the classroom so that it ends up being a digital textbook. Um, and I sold it to uh, uh, another school and um, I was observing the class and the teacher was teaching it like an MBA course and it was driving me crazy. And so I'm like, no, we need to really teach educators how to teach this class. And she and I have been teaching it the way I would want to see it taught. And so we're starting this workshop to teach educators how to teach entrepreneurship. So long story short, we are experiencing what you are, which is we've got limited time. She's got a full-time job. I've got my job. <laughs> we've got plenty on the going on. And so we've got these, these very defined um, pockets of time when we can um, get work done on developing, you know, the workshop and that business. So um, it does keep you focused. I can vouch for that. Um, I think the other thing too is when you are um, when you keep your day job, um, I think it just reduces your stress because you have your day job. It's not like your life is hanging in the balance. So um, uh, you know, I, I think it helps you. I can't, you know, it's just so rare. (laughs) So many people are in such a rush. And so the fact that you're taking this, your time with your business, uh, I have um, a a client now, somebody who, uh, who bought this business plan kit and she was feeling all this pressure to hurry up. And I, I was like, what's the rush? Why is there a deadline? I, you know, she was like, well, no. And I'm like, okay, so be thoughtful in what you're doing. There's, there's nobody that's saying you have to do this by a certain date. So, um, you know, build, build out your, your, your plan, build out your roadmap, and then you'll just chip away at it. So, um, so has that, I, I'm curious about the two of you. So you've been building your business for two years. Yeah. And so. Um, so we started. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, well, I, I want to know, like, 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 where are you now? <laughs> so when we started um, initially was in the end of 2017. 
uh, when the idea was born and we actually started uh, like a, took a little time to validate it first uh, to see if we're still excited after a couple of months then we did all the research to try to find a manufacturing partner to learn about the industry because both of us actually come from the software in wo- software world okay uh, we are still uh, in the development world actually by day that's our day job still oh. <laughs> okay no connection to the fashion or uh, clothing manufacturing world whatsoever so we knew um, I think how we approached it was also with a very engineering mindset or software engineering mindset that, you know, you don't have to build anything from zero, from scratch. In development, you use software that's already available and you pick and choose stuff from different parts and just combine them in your own unique way. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what we did. We found somebody who could help us with a lot of experience in the manufacturing side with all the contacts. We were also a bit fortunate in that, but I mean... We took out the list of all the possible contacts we could make, we could find, and we've decided from the beginning to manufacture in Bulgaria, where we are originally from, mm-hmm. because the country has big traditions in manufacturing. But because also we kind of want to have something that um, stands out nicely as uh, something that was uh, uh, that was born in our country as well. Like nice. eventually, if it grows, it's a nice commercial as well. Uh, that's happening even though we are based in Amsterdam but um, the name Dulo that comes from an old Bulgarian clan that actually started uh, the country as well so it has a little bit of that okay Um, and then basically once we found this person who we were uh, we want we trusted with the manufacturing we started a process in of product development which took us about 10 months Um, Mm -hmm. as we were testing fabrics uh, different models eventually we ordered 100 meters of fabric we made three batches of around 20 shirts. We did mm-hmm. one batch first with friends and family. We gave them away. We collected feedback quickly. Then the second one was to expand to a broader audience of people, uh, people who we don't know, so we'll get more honest feedback as well because there's always <laughs> danger of being too nice. Right, right. And then we did a lot of minor minor changes and adjustments in last batches. Um, and kind of we spent the first year behind the scenes in development and production while still documenting this whole process. So our main strategy to, to this day is to document the journey of building the business, which is really nice because it allows us to, uh, also for us to reflect. Again, we're That's doing nice. this, and even if it doesn't attract the most uh, reads or the biggest audience, for us it's super useful and super important because if we now uh, end up debating something, we can just say, hey, let's look at that because we did the same thing one year ago. Right. That's what we're thinking. That's how what we did. And that's what we learned from it. Let's not repeat the same mistake. Right. And then about uh, 12, no, not 12, 14 months ago, we opened actually for business, our online shop. And as Julian mentioned from the very beginning, because we had this year in development, we had an, an audience of people who knew about us. They became our first customers. We were super excited. Very nice, strong month. Uh, it's a great success. And then we launched in November, end of 2017. Mm-hmm. The deal was born actually in 2016. So the journey starts in 2016. Okay. November 2017, we launched the website. Great first month. And then we see in December, almost quiet. Nothing mm-hmm. happened. Crickets. We <laughs> yeah, we start to freak out, say, is the website bad? What happened here? Of course, us being programmers, the easiest thing for us is to change the website. <laughs> and we started tweaking things around a little bit. Um, then things started to pick up, but quite slowly. And then we figured out, actually, that um, this is something a lot of uh, startups are facing 
always they have a launch because they have a generated some buzz they have people who know about them then they reach yeah you have to you have to develop the long-term plan right not not the grand opening only (laughs) and we had i mean we didn't even think of the launches the launch we were always thinking long term but it just happened this way but we never realized how much work it is to build a brand and i have a background in marketing i studied marketing i worked in marketing but until building something with our own limited resources and just by ourselves with our hands um we figured out that it's quite difficult and it all is the things that go around with it as well and then the whole year was uh, a lot of learnings uh, uh again something good happens we get five percent great reactions we really fired up the 95 percent of the boring work kicks in and you being punched in the face and all that when you're learning stuff on your own a little bit but again because we have this security and freedom to experiment and we're not rushed by because we have our day jobs we never got freaked out we just say okay how can we improve small things and even to this day we're still fixing small things that you know if you're a more serious operation i guess you would have from the very beginning in an ideal world you know it depends. You're, you're, so I want to go back to one of your earlier questions when you were asking about, you know, what, what, what do you do when you sort of plateau, which is what you're talking about. So just to give you an example, what I do with clients is I say, okay, so you're trying to, um, you're trying to reach these certain people. And I'm a big believer in thinking in terms of customer personas. So really sort of taking an empathic view of putting yourself in your customer's shoes. Um, and I have this weird ability to, um, I, I guess I, I think of it as synthesizing, but sort of seeing patterns and connections. So um, I think, okay, you're selling men's shirts, Um, I know somebody else who's selling men's socks. There are companies out there that are selling, um, um, men's clothing or men's accessories, uh, that have a big presence. Can you partner with them and run some sort of, um, promotional, uh, kind of partnership type strategy, um, um, I think about um, my son is your target audience. He's in his first postgraduate job. Um, he's in Manhattan with a uh, in New York with a, a bunch of other, um, you know, uh, new new professionals. Um, there's a lot of word of mouth where they want um, performance and value. And they have a budget and I have, I don't remember how much your shirts are. Um, how much are your shirts in us dollars? I think they're around a hundred dollars. Right. So, um, the fact that they have all of these features that would be so appealing to that demographic. Um, and, uh, and if they, I don't know if they're, I can't remember, are they moisture wicking too or not, or I, I'm breathable. Exactly. They're, they're very breathable, but breathable. Okay. Still perfect. So you get in with some of them and, and so, you know, there's the whole word of mouth process, but then there are partnerships that you could try to develop 
with some employers where they've got, you know, these new, uh, you know, every year they hire these batches of, of new grads. They know they need to develop their wardrobes. And, you know, so what if there were some kind of something or other during the training period, there's some sort of promotion. So, I mean, so this is the kind of brainstorming that goes on where I'll throw out ideas and you're like, yeah, no, Diane, or, oh, you know, or you may say something about why you don't like my suggestion that will make me think of something else or that I'm saying something that makes you think of a new idea. And that's how the ideas come about because, you know, I've had experience for, okay, I guess 30 something years in all these disciplines. Um, you know, so manufacturing, operations, um, you know, uh, uh, retailing, um, uh, you name it, finance, um, as well as life experience. So, you know, uh, I've seen all these different kinds of companies and um, how they've sort of figured out how to get over the hump, et cetera. So, um, so there are lots of ideas coming to mind for you. <laughs> Well, I think we like with it's been quite an interesting post because we usually in the beginning I think we got stuck into the idea of just creating a lot of content and then like the business is gonna pick up from there. And then we kind of have a slow month and then we start thinking about new things and then for some reason just like the month gets better. And I say, okay, we're doing fine the way we're doing it. <laughs> so we don't kind of go into new options. Uh, but I think partnerships and uh, yeah, a lot of other things that we, <laughs> we actually need to start doing instead of you know just sitting behind them. The computers and trying to do it that way uh, but going back to uh, to when you started did you find it easier after let's say the first business that you helped reach uh, like a solid you know point did you find it easier applying those lessons into ones that followed or do you find the context very different from one another? uh no, I, uh, so the lessons uh, I guess my philosophy is that I'm um I'm bringing sort of standard business principles um, and my varied experience, which is pretty unusual experience um, uh, to, well, let me take a step back. So the whole idea is that I work collaboratively with my clients. So I'm not dictating. I'm not saying, oh, I know everything. Um, and here's this formula. And here are all the answers. This is how you do it. That's, that's not what I do, um, and that would be pretty boring. So the whole idea is to really work collaboratively, and my clients bring their passion and knowledge and it, hopefully industry knowledge to the table, and I bring my business experience, um, which is really, um, I want to say, multimodal, you know, um, understanding about the customer experience. Um, I, I am... I am constantly acting as devil's advocate. Um, I was brought up um, the I'm the daughter of a department store retailer. I have a high sensitivity to what customer experience should look like and how to think like a customer. Um, and then sort of the, I was a finance major. And so understanding the financial implications to everything. And then I'm, I'm sort of a geek. And so I, I, you know, have my tech head tendencies and, um, uh, and I like to know how things work. And so, um, 
So it's really a matter of bringing everything together. And um, that's why I say I'm industry agnostic. Really doesn't matter what in, I don't specialize in an industry. Uh, I love learning about new industries. And um, for me, a lot of what's involved in building a business is um, not only being able to understand your customer, but to be able to speak to them. And, um, and whether your customer is a venture capitalist, because you're trying to raise funds, or whether it's the um, customer that's walking in the store or going to your website, um, or whether your customer is, frankly, your employees, that you're trying to hire employees, you really need to think about your audience. There are all of these types of audiences. You have to know how to reach them, how to talk to them. And, um, and so to me, when I, the more, the more technical my client's business is, the more fun I think it is because I have to make them explain it in layman's terms. And I am able to then translate it into plain English so that other people understand. Yeah, that's something actually very interesting. Again, coming from our uh, backgrounds as well, I think being in the tech industry, this product that we created is basically a product that solves our own problem. That's how it started. We both like wearing dress shirts, but I, you probably know in the world, the standard is the hoodie and a t-shirt. It's not very common. But one of the main reasons is because I think like programmers in particular are very pragmatic type and they don't want to take care of all the hassle and all but that. We're exactly but we're not exactly coders or scholars who stumble into it either university and after, after, after some professional career already. Uh, we just saw an opportunity and decided to go in it. Um, and that's why we keep, we kept this desire to wear dress shirts from time to time. It's just nicer. To, mm-hmm. It looks nicer. Mm-hmm. And I think people perceive it differently. And it came from this uh, need for us to not waste 15 minutes every morning ironing, not feeling super constrict, uh, constricted in a like a traditional like type. Uh, um, but we ended up with a very technical product as well. That when we first started to describe, we were it was sounding a lot like we we're just explaining features. You know, it's this and that and that, A, B, C, D. We come right. up with this list right. that um, we learned that eventually. Apparently, it doesn't resonate with people that uh, they don't find it that exciting. Even though for us, this is like, wow, it's <laughs> super cool. It's the best shirt that you can ever have, right? I think it's super interesting how, uh, and it's actually quite difficult as well. How do you translate it something more that resonates emotionally with, uh, with the audience? Where do you look for... What do you look for to uh, maybe you can uh, give some tips to other founders who are facing similar problems like what right. do you do right. to kind of translate these technical technical uh, specification specs something that's understandable more like a target. That's another thing I think. Some I'm founders make a mistake in the. I'm having, I'm sorry, I'm having a little bit of a connection issue. So I apologize if I'm, I'm like looking elsewhere on my screen because you're, I don't know if it's happening at your end or if it's just me. Um, hang on just a second. I did catch what you were saying. Yeah, we just got a little bit of luck on your side, but I think now it's fine and we're all. Okay, Hope, hopefully. Okay, sorry. Was um, When you have this, uh, let's say a more technical, product or, or so you're building software how do you communicate to your target group who is not necessarily the same people as you or that knowledgeable as you 
Right. Let's say you're a software business, uh, marketing automation or anything. You're not talking to the developer. You're talking to the marketer. Totally different uh, person. Right. Well, I, I talk to my clients about needing to appeal to the head and the heart. So, um, um, you know, there's the logical part of your brain of, oh, yes, these features are what I need. But there needs to be some sort of emotional connection, too. Like, oh, my God, this is going to make my life so much easier. Um, you know, you, you, you want to really get them there. And this is a little bit about what I was talking about with your, your website when I was making those comments. I'm like, I can tell this is a great product, but there's too much interference going on and it's not speaking directly to me as the customer. It, it was like, here I am the customer. It was talking over there a little, it was just a little off focus. Um, and so uh, it is a matter of whether you do that through um, uh, through focus groups and 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 talking to existing customers who will be honest with you, or whether it's you know working with an experienced professional, or whether it is trial and error, uh, whatever it is, um, you know you you need to. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I only know how I do it, uh, which is, you know what, I, I just can look at something and I can see it's missing the mark. Here's why this is what I would do. And um, I'm constantly tweaking things so that it is, um, in fact, here's an example. So I drive my clients crazy when they're putting together pitch decks, because I'm like, nope, fewer words, fewer words, fewer words, use bullets not complete sentences, you want the, there are these things that I, you know, you need to, um, uh, you need to connect with the audience. You don't want them looking at the slides. You want them looking at you. That's, the slides are just a placeholder and you need to get to the point and you can't ramble and you need to make eye contact and um, you need to, the whole reason I came up with my business name is you need to distill, distill, distill. You need to distill it down so that you are um, getting the point across clearly and succinctly. And, and, and that is the story. That's the name of the game. So if I've got a client who I remember my, my, I think my favorite client to date was, um, a biofuels manufacturer. And I remember this is a guy who works for Shell. Um, um, uh, he was in, in Amsterdam, actually, and then in Alabama. But um, uh, but he's a Dutch national. And um, uh, he came to me and I didn't know anything about biofuels. So I'm like, okay, you know, explain it to me. And I learned about feedstock and that sugarcane could be a great feedstock and you know all this technical stuff and and um it was a matter of explaining it in plain english and just really succinctly so that uh and and telling that story um you know everything's a fairy tale with the startup meaning you know there's this problem um the quote unquote damsel in distress and then the startup comes in and saves the day 
you know, is the hero. And so you need to sort of take the audience on that journey, at least when you're raising funds. And so, um, uh, and so it's a matter of being able to explain that in the way that people can understand. So in plain English in, in and in words that laymen understand. Um, for the customer, it's a matter of speaking to them in terms of their daily lives. So thinking about the pain point and yeah, I've got a kid who I know um, um, will spend a little more on shirts that will last longer, be more comfortable, won't uh, require any ironing that look nice, that fit him nicely. Um, uh, the fact that he doesn't have to iron them sounds awesome. <laughs> and he and his friends will be totally into it. So, you know, you got to speak to that, not droning on about how they're manufactured or, you know, the history of the fabric or I don't know, whatever else. Um, so, yeah. Sure. Those are things usually that people, if they're that interested, they always find, you can always tell it in a somewhere on the side as a side note, or if they ask you, then you tell the story. Exactly. Because it's actually very easy to uh, dis distract people and confuse the message that you want to, to communicate. Right. Yeah. What they now, it's, uh, it's, I think we're ne nearing the hour as well. I want to spend some time on, uh, tell us a little bit about your future plans and, future projects that are coming in the next half a year to a year. I'm really curious about that. Well, I never know what future projects are coming because it's a matter of somebody picking up the phone and saying help. <laughs> so, uh, so who knows? Um, that's kind of the fun of it. Um, and uh, in terms of future projects, well, you know, so there's this, this, this teaching workshop thing that I was telling you about. So um I guess about four years ago, my uh, or five years ago, my kids' school started teaching a social entrepreneurship class in the high school. And I always wore my professional hat and my parent hat separately. So no one at school knew that I, um, you know, did this work professionally. Um, but there was a newsletter that talked about their culminating project being a um, uh, a pitch night. And I went and I observed and I was jumping out of my skin <laughs> saying, okay, this is a history teacher teaching this course. This isn't really going quite right. Got involved, mentored. Um, uh, anyway, ended up here today. And um, so this other teacher uh, and I are, are developing this workshop to teach educators how you teach entrepreneurship, um, which is a very hands-on, um, um, collaborative kind of experience. So we um, connect with uh, startups here in the local area. They bring real problems uh, to the students. And it is absolutely amazing how these students come up with real, actionable, valuable solutions for these businesses. I mean, it, it, it is mind blowing to me. So um, we had two companies this past semester and they both walked out stunned <laughs> saying, holy cow, we're actually gonna do these things. So um, we want 
other schools to teach this and to teach it in a way that's meaningful for students, not only if they want to become entrepreneurs, but so that they can think in this way, even if they work for a Fortune 500 company, um, so that they can think about innovation and speaking directly, speaking to their customers and um, uh, addressing pain points and um, thinking in terms of the problem solution framework. So um, to me, that's that's my exciting project that I know about. So it sounds very exciting here. It's um, we we had a, some experiences working with uh, students in universities here uh, in the Netherlands. There's two types of universities: academic and more uh, uh, practice-oriented universities, mm-hmm. practice universities, applied sciences. Um, and uh, we we got to do a couple of student projects, and it's really amazing what they can do. But I think. Uh, it's very important to work with the teachers as well to guide them in the right way because um, what I've noticed as well is that a lot of them are just following a curriculum that's not really relevant or applicable and when you're talking especially about startups everything is so dynamic that you should have as less constraints as possible. Well, yes. Although I always say it's better to have um, a framework that you're working within and then so I'm a big believer in business plans in whatever form it takes, whether it's just a canvas or a full-fledged thing, whatever it is, um, that that's the foundation. And then when you've got that foundation, you're able to um, make better decisions, whatever they are, because, you know, you know, you were saying it before. I mean, building a business is a dynamic process. It evolves. Um, Julian, you were asking me before about... Um, uh, you know, the experience with clients and, you know, how, if they're the same or not. And, you know, each one evolves completely differently because it's just a completely organic process. But when you've got this foundation, then you're able to say, yes, that partnership makes sense, or no, I'm not interested in um, selling the business right now, or no, I really don't want to take that outside funding, you know, for this reason or that reason, because you've thought about these issues ahead of time, as opposed to, you know, having to sort of immediately react, having no framework or um, frame of reference. So um, I don't know, but we'll have to talk and then I can, I can uh, share my digital textbook with you. And, uh, and maybe when the workshop after this summer is a, maiden voyage of the workshop then we could talk about that too (laughs) find out more about uh, you and your work the workshop the ebook and everything that you mentioned uh, so far now is the time to make sure you um, share them and uh, we'll include them in the show notes as well so people can Mm -hmm. have it check them out immediately well everyone can go to startupdistillery.com and that's where you can uh, learn all about me and uh, my company and what I do. And then um, there is a page on there that's uh, or in the navigation bar for educators. And that talks about the, um, uh, the textbook for the entrepreneurship class and coming soon will be a page about the workshop. So. uh. (laughs) Twitter handle. Uh, Startup distiller without the E. yeah. Folks, you follow uh, Diane there because I think she has some very nice things to share. Yeah. <laughs> Even in short tweet format. <laughs> Thank you both.
thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. thanks for coming. It on. was a pleasure. Thank you for the time and uh, for okay. everything. Hey, thank you so much for listening and sticking through us through this episode. Really appreciate your attention. Now, a few more things. Um, you probably heard about us. We are the co-founders of Dulo. That's Julian and I. And uh, what is Dulo? Well, Dulo is your favorite performance dress shirt made in Europe. Uh, it's non-iron, it's stretch, it's wrinkle-free, it's anti-odor. Basically, all the goodies in a dress shirt without all the hassle involved in getting it ready in the morning. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, like, share with somebody who might find this valuable. It really helps us in spreading the word and getting more listeners and making more of this podcast. Thank you. Until next time. Bye-bye.